Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Our message today for Resurrection Sunday will be a bit unusual. It's part of the resurrection story that we don't often focus on. It's Matthew 28. It's going to be verses 11 through 15. And we're going to be looking at the story of people who denied the resurrection of Jesus. But before we get to that, I want to start with three basic truths about the resurrection. Number one, in the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. We hear this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So in the resurrection, God was making a statement about Jesus. He truly is the Son of God, and all power belongs to him. So that's number one. A second truth about the resurrection that we want to have in mind is this. Jesus' sacrifice for our sins was accepted by God. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So in the resurrection... God was making a statement that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins has been accepted. My sin penalty is paid by Jesus, and I have God's stamp of approval on this by his raising Jesus from the dead. And then the third thing is the promise of the resurrection in the future. We find this in Romans chapter 4. Verses 22 to 25, Paul tells us that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So in the resurrection... God was making a statement that if we have faith like Abraham, then we will be justified in God's sight like Abraham was. And if we have this faith in God who raised Jesus because he was righteous, then we have the promise that God will raise us too since we're counted righteous like Jesus. So Jesus' resurrection serves as the promise of our resurrection too. Excuse me. So last week we looked at Matthew 21 and the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this week we're in Matthew 28. What I want to do is take just two minutes to kind of skim over what happens between Matthew 21 and Matthew 28 so that we have the whole story in mind. When we looked at the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, we saw that Jesus was acclaimed as king, but his kingdom is different from the kingdoms of this world. Nevertheless, the power brokers of this world see Jesus as a threat. And then Jesus pronounces judgment on the temple. He curses the fig tree as kind of a picture of showing that Israel is not bearing fruit. And he answers questions about where his authority comes from. And then he tells parables about God's judgment on those who do not obey his word. In Matthew 22, the parables continue with a parable about 
being ready for when God comes in judgment. And then there's a discussion about what belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God. And Jesus answers questions about the resurrection and about God's laws and about Jesus' identity as the Son of God. When you get to chapter 23, Jesus has a very specific targeted teaching towards the religious leaders. And he pronounces seven woes or judgments on the religious leaders of Israel, and he finishes with a lament over Jerusalem because they have rejected him. Then in chapters 24 and 25, we have what we call the Olivet Discourse. It's just Jesus' teaching while he was on the Mount of Olives. And here he prophesies judgment that's coming on Jerusalem and on the temple because Israel has fully and finally rejected their Messiah. And with this, Jesus tells several parables about being ready for God's arrival in judgment. Then in chapter 26, that chapter begins with the final plot to kill Jesus. Jesus is anointed by a woman and then he's betrayed by a disciple. He spends the Passover with his disciples and celebrates what we call the Last Supper with them. Then Jesus prays in the garden, he's arrested, and he's put on trial before the Jewish rulers. And as Jesus foretold, even Peter denies Jesus. Then in Matthew 27, Jesus is put on trial in front of the Romans, ultimately being sentenced to death by crucifixion. And as the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple, Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus is then buried in the garden tomb and a guard is placed at the tomb to prevent the disciples from stealing his body to make it look like he rose from the dead like he said he would. So that brings us up to Matthew 28 and we're going to focus on verses 11 through 15 but let's pick up the story beginning in Matthew 28 and verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And now here's the part that we're going to focus on this morning. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I'd like us to consider this morning what we are told about the soldiers and the Jewish rulers and their denials of the resurrection. We will see their contradictory convictions, their hardened hearts, and their treacherous tactics. So let's start with those contradictory convictions. And this begins with an absurd report. Have you read any good detective stories? Or watched any mystery movies or TV shows? There's always a few clues that, if you're tuned in, help you to see where someone's story just doesn't add up. Usually they're pretty subtle things that you might miss unless you're really paying attention. Like Sherlock Holmes and the story of the dog that didn't bark. The clue was that the dog didn't bark when the murderer came. And that indicated that the murderer was someone the dog already knew and was familiar with. Well, this story that is fabricated by the Jewish rulers in Matthew 28 is not subtle. It wouldn't make a good detective story because it's so obviously not true. Think about this for a minute. First, it's not reasonable to think that these Roman soldiers fell asleep. A group of soldiers was assigned to the high priest for his own use in policing the Jewish people. And these were highly trained soldiers, potentially under the death penalty if they fell asleep while on duty. To suggest that all of the soldiers assigned to guard the tomb fell asleep at the same time is completely unbelievable. Second, the fact that Jesus' grave clothes were left behind is evidence that his body was not taken by his friends. Why would his friends take the time in the tomb to unwind and unwrap all of those many layers of grave wrappings from Jesus' body and then fold the face covering neatly and leave it behind. It's not a plausible story. And third, think about how nonsensical the story is just in and of itself. If the soldiers really were asleep, how could they know what happened? How would they know the body was stolen? And if they knew the body was stolen, they must have been awake. If they were awake... Why wouldn't they have stopped Jesus' friends from taking the body? It's not possible that they were asleep and that they're able to say exactly what happened. Certainly, there's an obvious truth here. The reality is that both the Roman soldiers and the Jewish rulers knew exactly what really did happen. If they truly thought that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body, they would have sent soldiers to apprehend the disciples. But there's no hint that they ever pursued the disciples to try to retrieve Jesus' body. Not only this, they didn't even investigate. There's no trial, no investigation, no inquiry. This is the most incompetent political operation imaginable. Unless they actually believed the report of the soldiers. No one's punished for this supposed crime of grave robbery. It's a direct and obvious cover-up because the Jewish rulers knew 
that what the soldiers told them really was true. Their public statement is that Jesus' body was stolen. But the reality is they knew he had risen from the dead. Let's talk about their hardened hearts. And we begin here with hatred and malice and hypocrisy. This episode reveals what is really in the hearts of the Jewish rulers. They have hatred in their hearts towards Jesus. And when the human heart is filled with hatred, it will not allow men to make wise decisions. Here, the Jewish rulers are revealed to be hypocrites. Excuse me. They're hypocrites. They know the truth, but they will not admit it. They persist in purveying their falsehoods out of hatred toward Jesus. They're hypocrites, as Jesus often said. Whitewashed tombs, clean and white on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. That's what Jesus said. And while Jesus' tomb actually is empty, the tombs of the Jewish ruler's hearts are full of malice and hatred and hypocrisy. In C.S. Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the land of Narnia is under the curse of the white witch so that it is always winter but never Christmas. And as long as the curse lasts, it remains winter. But once the four children arrive and Aslan is on his way, the prophecies begin to be fulfilled and a thaw begins and spring is coming. Father Christmas shows up and gives gifts to the animals. And when the witch sees the animals enjoying their gifts and celebrating a feast together, she says angrily, what is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? Where did you get all these things? Please, your majesty, said the fox, we were given them. And if I might make so bold as to drink your majesty's very good health, who gave them to you, said the witch. Father Christmas, stammered the fox. What? roared the witch, springing from the sledge and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. He has not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? But no, say you have been lying and you shall even now be forgiven. The Jewish rulers are like the white witch in Narnia. They would rather live with a lie than admit the truth of the resurrection. And so they make an effort to save face, not to repent. If their hearts had really been right, the Jewish rulers would have immediately repented when presented with the evidence from the Roman soldiers. They would have said, we were wrong about this Jesus. He truly is the Messiah. He truly is the Son of God. But they don't. And it's remarkable that neither the Roman soldiers nor the Jewish rulers were converted. Not by what they saw, not by what they heard, but there's an important biblical truth there for us to remember. The best evidence will not convince people unless the Holy Spirit is working in them. God must open our eyes and open our hearts before we are willing to accept the truth of the gospel. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story about a rich man who died and he was in torment. He's separated from God and he begged to be allowed to send someone back to warn his brothers who were still alive so that they could believe the truth and not end up where he was. 
But in Jesus' story, Abraham answers him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And that's exactly what we see here. Even though Jesus has risen from the dead, they will not believe. Yes, they know what happened, but they do not believe. They do not trust Jesus. They do not bow to him. They do not submit to him. And part of the reason is what's in their hearts. They have murder in their hearts. In Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge gets a second chance. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future show him the truth about his life. And once he realizes the truth, he changes. His heart is changed and his actions change as well. These Jewish rulers are faced with the truth now about what they have done. Jesus has been raised. He truly is the Son of God with power. If they had the opportunity to meet with Jesus after his resurrection, what would these rulers do? Would they ask him honest questions? Would they reconsider his claims? Would they give him a fair hearing? No, it's fairly clear what they would do. They would seek to kill him again. Philip Doddridge, an old commentator, writes that had not Christ been kept out of their sight and power, they would, notwithstanding all this, have endeavored to bring him down to the tomb again on the very same principles on which they would have slain Lazarus after his resurrection. Have you ever noticed what Doddridge is commenting on there? It's kind of part of the Lazarus story we don't maybe always key in on and notice. In John 12, after Jesus had raised Lazarus, and people are coming to see Lazarus and they're listening to Jesus because of this. We read, <clears throat> the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus was raised from the dead and the Jewish rulers wanted to kill him. And their evil hearts would have led them to do the same to Jesus. Let's think about treacherous tactics here for a minute. What's the strategy that the Jewish rulers now employ to deny the resurrection? It begins with lies and deceit. The strategy had been to get rid of Jesus through violence and murder. A public execution on trumped up charges to make the public think that he was a criminal and a threat to the nation. But now that those tactics don't work, they turn to lies and deceit. One sin here requires another sin to defend it. And it's ironic that the very thing that the Sanhedrin tried to prevent with the guards, the disciples stealing the body, became the story that they used to cover up the truth of what really happened. The soldiers were posted at the grave so that the disciples couldn't steal the body and claim that Jesus had risen. But now that Jesus really has risen, 
grave robbery becomes the story that they use to try to hide the truth. They also resort to bribery to shore up their lies and deceit. They give the soldiers money to go along with the cover-up, just like they offered money to Judas to betray Jesus so that they could level their false charges against him in the first place. Now they offer money to the soldiers so that they will hide the truth and perpetuate the lie that the body was stolen. They also promised the soldiers legal protection if this were to come to the attention of the governor, Pilate. We've got your back if this ever comes to light. But have you ever wondered why the Jewish rulers want to keep the whole thing out of Pilate's ears? Pilate had seemed almost persuaded to acquit Jesus. If the evidence of Jesus' resurrection were to come to light, how would Pilate respond? If either the disciples or the soldiers had been put on trial, then the story would have come out. What would Pilate have done? He very well may have believed the resurrection story and acquitted the soldiers or the disciples. And then the deceitfulness of the ruler's story would be on display for everyone to see. The last tactic that I want to mention is technocracy. What we really have here is technocratic rule by these Jewish rulers. A technocracy, you've maybe heard that word a little bit more in the news recently. It's when you're ruled by the experts or by the elite who know better than you what's good for you. And the Jewish rulers here are not interested in what's true, but rather what they think is best for themselves and for the nation. See, when the soldiers come with their story, the rulers immediately convene the Sanhedrin to decide what to do. This is the group that's made up of representatives from the various ruling factions, religious groups, and elders in Israel. And their decision is not to investigate, to find the truth. No, their decision is blatantly to make up a false story and propagate it as the truth. They believe that what is best for the nation is that the truth about Jesus is hushed up. They think the nation will be better off believing a lie than knowing the truth. And so they strategize to put out public disinformation, fake news, a lie. A commentator uh, from a while ago, Nathaniel Lardner, writes, Sad is the condition of a people when their rulers and teachers practice themselves and recommend to others falsehood and prevarication and other wickedness. And I might point out that this is our own condition today. Rulers that lie to us for the public safety, for the public good, rather than telling the truth and letting the people decide what to do with the truth. So we see in these Jewish rulers contradictory convictions, hardened hearts, treacherous tactics, all the wrong responses to the resurrection. Why would people want to deny the resurrection of Jesus? Doesn't it seem like the kind of news that you would want to be true? Doesn't it seem like the kind of news you would want to spread? Well, at the beginning of the message, I mentioned three truths about the resurrection, and each one of them is a great blessing and a fantastic truth for us to grab onto, but each one also shows us a reason that people would want to deny the resurrection. We said, first of all, that in the resurrection, God was making a statement about Jesus. He truly is the Son of God, and all power belongs to him. Well, who would want to deny this? 
those whose power is threatened by Jesus, those who are his enemies and do not want to bow the knee to him. We also said that in the resurrection, God was making a statement that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins has been accepted. But what if I don't want to believe that I'm a sinner? What if I don't want to believe that I need salvation? Those who believe they are good enough don't want to admit what the resurrection means about their need for a savior. And we also said that in the resurrection, God was making a statement that if we have faith like Abraham, then we will be justified in God's sight like Abraham was. And if we have this faith in God who raised Jesus because he was righteous, then we have the promise that God will raise us too since we are counted righteous like Jesus. So Jesus' resurrection serves as the promise of our resurrection too. This means that there is a future judgment. And those who do not want to believe that God will hold them accountable for their sins do not want to admit what the resurrection means about a future judgment. Just like the Jewish rulers in Jesus' day, many people today have reasons to deny the truth of the resurrection. But as with so many evil things that we find in Scripture, God uses the denials and the lies and the schemes of the Jewish rulers for his own purposes. That's because he's sovereign. And so I want us to think for a minute about the sovereignty and providence of God. For one thing, these Jewish rulers, in their stupidity and stubbornness, stand as a testament to the sovereignty of God. They could not stop God's plan. In the day that Matthew writes his gospel, the story that was made up by the Jewish rulers was spread widely among the Jewish people. Jewish people were deceived and believed this false story. Two things should be said about that. Number one, this is part of the judgment of God on the Jewish people for rejecting the Messiah. Jesus gave many warnings of judgment. Matthew's gospel is full of them. It culminates in that Olivet Discourse, which predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would happen in just a few short years in A.D. 70. And the judgment came, why? Because of their unbelief. And in believing these lies, they're hardened in their unbelief. Second, however, the story does not in the least hinder the progress of the gospel throughout the world. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, like we saw last week in the book of Acts, the gospel goes throughout the world. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection advances in that same short period of time before A.D. 70, and it includes, includes both Jews and Gentiles, all who believe in Jesus. And there was not one person whose heart and mind was opened by the Holy Spirit that was deceived by the story of the Jewish rulers. Remember what Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You see, Jesus, the good shepherd, did not lose one sheep because of this silly story. In the providence of God, though, these Roman soldiers and Jewish rulers who were so concerned to oppose the truth of the resurrection have actually become the first preachers of the resurrection. 
Still today, we are reading the story of the testimony of these soldiers coming and announcing the angel's appearance and Jesus' resurrection. And we're reading the story of these Jewish rulers unsuccessfully trying to suppress the resurrection because there are hundreds of millions of people all around the world today who know and believe the truth of Jesus rising from the dead. So let me suggest three kind of appropriate responses for us this morning as you think about this particular story. First, pay attention to the soldiers. When the angel appeared, verse 4 tells us that for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But within just a few short hours, verse 15 tells us they took the money and did as they were directed. They experienced the terror of encountering God's messenger, but that terror was soon forgotten. If you hear God's word today and you know that you should respond in faith, do not follow in the footsteps of the soldiers. The terror wore off and they participated in a grand cover-up simply for their own safety and security. But the safety and security that comes from denying the truth only lasts for a short time. The safety and security that comes from trusting Jesus lasts for eternity. So do not put off the response to Jesus that you know you should make. Believe the truth. Secondly, Know the truth. There will always be adversaries of the truth. We should recognize that the powers of this world will not tell us the truth. You are being lied to all the time. And since you know this, you are responsible to be a truth seeker. You are to know the truth. You've been given the standard, the word of God. So measure what you hear from your rulers against the measuring stick of God's word. You're responsible to know when you're being lied to. You're responsible to know the truth. And ultimately, this means turning your eyes regularly and constantly to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is only one way to the Father, and there is only one source of truth, Jesus. Know the truth. And third, speak truth. Knowing that there will always be adversaries of the truth, you will be tempted to sell out. You'll be tempted to take the money and participate in the cover-up. After all, that's the way to make sure that you and your family are safe and secure. If you don't, there might be a risk. There might be danger. But remember, Jesus has said that in this world, you will have trouble. Count on it. You'll be tempted to deny the truth, to compromise, to sell out in little ways by not speaking up, avoiding ridicule, maybe to ensure the promotion, to keep a friend. But truth matters. When Jesus asked the disciples, will you too leave me? They answered, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of life. Words matter. Truth matters. 
When the apostles were arrested in Acts chapter 5 for speaking the truth, the angel appeared to them and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Speak the words of life. You and I are called to do the same thing. Speak the words of life, even if it means that you give up safety and security to do so. In the resurrection, God declares Jesus to be the Son of God in power. He is our ruler. He is the one that we give our allegiance to. In the resurrection, God declares that our sins have been forgiven in Christ. It's the most important news that everyone needs to hear. And in the resurrection, we are told that we too will live again. Yes, we will face adversaries to the truth. We will have rulers that lie to us. Yes, it may be dangerous to speak the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, but if I know that because Jesus was raised, I too will be raised, then I can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Would you pray with me? Lord, as we consider these words this morning, this story of the Roman soldiers and Jewish rulers who denied the resurrection and put out these lies and this false story, I pray that we would be struck with the need for truth, that we would understand that truth comes from you and that we as your people are to be people of truth. We're responsible to believe the truth, to know the truth, and to speak the truth. I pray that having heard the truth of your word this morning, we would respond rightly. We would respond in submission and obedience to what it is that you have said. We thank you for the resurrection and for what that means for us. We thank you for the promise that that gives us of our own future resurrection and, and for the statement that it is that our sins are forgiven. And we thank you too for what it says about Jesus. 